The following podcast is brought to you by Rare Book School at the University of Virginia and sponsored by the Pine Tree Foundation of New York. To learn more about our programs and how you can support our school, please visit our website at www.rarebookschool.org. Thank you and enjoy. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Michael Suarez, and I'm the director of Rare Book School. On behalf of the school, I'm delighted to welcome you to this, our eighth summer lecture in our series sponsored by the Pine Tree Foundation of New York. I'd also like to acknowledge the generous cooperation of the Harrison Institute and the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library, where we now sit. Students at Rare Book School will know that textual transmission almost invariably introduces variation. Sometimes it is unwelcome. Every Rare Book School student who came in the door should have a piece of paper. This piece of paper is the cancelans. And if you have your vade mecum and you open up to the leaf that is 17 and 18, and if you take a pair of scissors <laughs> and you either destroy or otherwise mark or cut out the cancelans, I like to leave it in so that there's a record of what the variant text was. <laughs> Then you can reach to the back here and you can peel off the adhesive for which we have, because we are all of us obsessive compulsives, a little bag to take your little adhesive backings. <laughs> and now you can take the cancelands and bang it over the cancelandum so and order is restored. <laughs> Paper, scissors, the rock. <laughs> Sue Gosen is the rock. For more than 35 years, she has been running or co-running Giudone, a press, paper mill, and highly collaborative artist space that has been nothing less than a transformative force in the world of printmaking and the book arts. Not surprisingly, she studied with the best, with Warrington Walscott and the book artist Walter Hamady, a name that should be known to some of you, taking her MFA in 1976. And in that same year, she co-founded Judone Press and Paper in New York City. Over time, Giudone became the place for hand paper making, for artists' books, and much more. When the Library of Congress hires you to produce its archival paper and specifies that it must have a survival life of nothing less than 500 years, you know you are the best of the best. 
when the Nobel laureate Tesla Milosh allows your press to do an artist's book of your poems, you know you are the best of the best. And the tradition continues. The Jujone Workspace Residency Program, which has been running since 1990, received more than 350 applications this summer, an all-time high. The artists who have found Jujone a gift from God run into the many hundreds. The list of foundations with which have sponsored Sue and or her enterprise reads like a who's who that would make any executive director envious. In addition to all this, Sue Gosen seems to be an unusually amazing person, for this is what she has to say about the poesis, the great creative enterprise of making beautiful things to which she has dedicated her life. It doesn't make a difference if you're two years old or 80 years old. Every single person can do this. I believe that we're all born artists. And then we have to do things like make a living. <laughs> so we kind of put that aside. This process helps people to unlock that. Nature is always an equal partner in this process. And if you just let nature show you the way, nature shows you the way to be an artist. Rock, paper, scissors. Tonight, everyone here wins. I am delighted to introduce to you Sue Gosen. Oh, thank you. What an introduction. Good heavens. Um, it's wonderful to be here in honor. Thank you so much, Michael. And I really do believe those words that you just quoted. I think we are all artists. And we still are artists. And actually, the fun thing about getting a little bit older is that I think you kind of find that muse again, which is a lovely thing to do to kind of come full circle. But anyway, okay, so rock, paper, scissors, the revival of hand paper making in the 20th and 21st centuries. Both the hand game uh, rock, paper, scissors, and hand paper making were invented in China approximately 105 AD. As the name of the game suggests, paper played an important role in Chinese culture. When you stop to think about it, paper is an amazing invention. Before there was paper, humans left messages on cave walls, and though permanent, they weren't too portable, whereas stone and clay uh, tablets, though portable, were pretty cumbersome. Unlike papyrus and palm leaves, paper can be made from many different plant sources that grow all over the world. And certainly, paper is less costly than sheepskin or vellum, and if properly made, will last hundreds of years, 500 years at least, uh, it is easily transportable, adaptable, inexpensive, and remarkably strong. As a matter of fact, it's the perfect surface. All right, let's see if we can start. Here we go. Um, I don't have pictures of early Chinese paper making from 105 AD, 
But these slides of contemporary papermaking in Nepal show how the traditional craft was probably practiced thousands of years ago in China. Fundamentally, the paper, the manufacture of paper is still the same. Plant fiber from freshly harvested plants or from recycled fiber is beaten by hand um, or by machine. The resulting pulp is suspended in a vat of water and a framed porous screen, kind of like a window screen, uh, which is called a paper mold, is dipped into the vat of pulp to form a sheet of paper. Uh, the extra water drains off, and then you have a freshly formed sheet of paper, as you see right there. Uh, the paper can either be dried in the very simple rudimentary mold, or as you'll see in a few minutes, it can be uh, pressed onto felts and then dried. Um, paper making, the secrets of paper making, uh, spread across the globe. First, uh, east to Japan and the use of mulberry, and then west to India and the Middle East for the use of cotton and linen. Paper makers adapted the process to indigenous plants and recycled materials. As paper making spread, it created a revolution worldwide in the recording and storage of information. For almost 2,000 years, paper has been the primary platform or support for humankind's most important images and thoughts, as well as for currency and even toilet paper. Before the Industrial Revolution, all paper was made by hand, one sheet at a time, but as machine-made paper replaced handmade paper, particularly in the Western world, the old mills became extinct and the craftsmanship died out. Okay, the arts and crafts movement of the early 20th century ushered in a revival in both hand, fine hand printing and traditional hand paper making. Dart Hunter, who's pictured here, many of you probably know him, uh, know of him rather, Dart Hunter is, <laughs> I hope you don't know him, uh, Dart Hunter is credited as the initial pioneer in the revival of hand paper making in the United States. A practicing Roy Crofter, Hunter was interested in the design and production aspects of many interrelated crafts. He championed the traditions of hand printing and hand paper making in the book arts. As early as 1913, his first hand paper, he, he built uh, his first hand paper mill in an attempt to produce fine handmade paper for his own publications and to create a new source of American handmade paper. The mill closed after five years of operation, and though uh, his second attempt to establish a paper mill in the 1930s met with a similar fate, his knowledge and enthusiasm for hand paper making did not diminish. Rather, he directed his passion into research, traveling the world to record different methods of hand paper making, eventually writing extensively on the history and practice of the craft. After Hunter closed his mill in the 1930s, hand paper making died in the United States. However, his legacy lives on through the papers and the equipment he collected, the fine books he wrote and produced, and the invaluable research he recorded. Um, hand paper making lay dormant for decades, but it was Dart Hunter's research that provided the link to its eventual rebirth at the hands of Douglas Howell. Howell was born in the United States, but spent much of his youth with his family in Europe. It was in Italy that he was introduced to fine printing and fine Italian handmade paper. After he served in the United States Armed Forces in World War II, he returned to the United States to follow his chosen path as an artist. His frustration with the poor quality of art papers available after the war led him to research fine paper making at the New York Public Library, where he discovered Hunter's books. Using them as instruction manuals, he proceeded to build a beater, paper molds, vats, all the necessary equipment so that he could make his own paper. 
Though he gained essential information from Hunter's books, he was primarily self-taught. He rarely supported himself with his hand papermaking, but he was a passionate papermaker until his death in 1994. Howell devoted most of his time as a papermaker to making his own art and to studio research, especially uh, using the um, material flax or linen. Howell was ultimately as important to the revival of hand papermaking as Hunter for two reasons. He reinvented the process as a tool of artistic expression, thereby breathing new life into an outdated technology, and he directly passed on his knowledge to the next generation of hand papermakers. In reinventing papermaking, Hal created an entirely new vocabulary in the process. He worked two-dimensionally and three-dimensionally in paper pulp sculpture, as well as in the book arts. In each context, he created a completely new application using established decorative and artistic traditions such as stenciling, watermarking, and collaging in a way that had never been used before. He did not collaborate with other artists on their art, but he made custom handmade paper for some of the artists of his day, including Jackson Pollock and Jean Moreau. He conducted occasional introductory workshops to neighborhood kids and, and school kids, and, and he did a few in-depth tutorials. He even appeared on the Today Show in the 1950s to demonstrate hand papermaking. However, his most important contribution as an educator was to teach Lawrence Barker the fundamentals of hand papermaking during a weekend workshop in 1963. Armed with the essentials of the process, Barker returned to his position as the head of printmaking at the Cranbrook Academy in Michigan and set about establishing the first hand papermaking studio in a college setting. Thus began a family tree of hand papermaking teachers and students that has grown exponentially for five decades. At Cranbrook in the 1960s, Lawrence Barker taught Walter Hamity, who then taught Joe Wilfer, Paul Wong, Ruth Lingen, and me, to name just a few. He, um, Lawrence Barker also taught Eris Catrullis, who taught the Clarks of Twin Rocker. He taught Winifred Lutz, who's pictured here, um, who taught at Yale, amazingly, and then Tyler, uh, taught papermaking at Yale. Uh, he taught John Kohler, who collaborated with publisher um, Ken Tyler, and he also taught Tim Barrett uh, as a high school student. From this particular branch of American hand papermakers, many pioneers emerged and went on to develop the institutions that have defined American hand papermaking in the 21st century. But before following the paths of Lawrence Barker's students, I will briefly talk about two other key pioneers who independently developed their interests apart from the Hunter Howell family tree of hand papermakers. Both Ken Tyler and Garner Tullis were art publishers who became hand papermakers by default because the innovations in printmaking that they helped to develop drew them into a closer examination of paper as it related to printmaking and the fabrication of paper reliefs. As Hunter then Howell discovered the supply of fine art papers was limited to European imports, these were available only in standardized sizes, colors, fibers, textures, shapes, and weight with a selection of basically white or off-white book-size rectangular sheets. Conjure up a Rembrandt etching, even a colored Picasso lithograph, and you see the printed image on the surface of the paper. Um, but you don't see the paper itself. It's really not a part of the art in a certain way. It's just the carrier. Until the paper revolution in the second half of the 20th century in the United States, paper was as invisible in fine art as it was in daily life. 
However, the renaissance of fine printmaking in the United States in the beginning of the 1960s led to a technological and aesthetic revolution in all aspects of fine print, which fed to the experimentation in the paper itself. Artists began pushing the limits of of the traditional white rectangle, demanding a rainbow of colored sheets in sizes measured by feet, not inches, and in all forms of geometric shapes with natural decals. The Times demanded custom-made paper that was individually designed to enhance the print that would lie on its surface. Thus, it was a short leap to go from craft to art, from custom-designed sheets of paper to painting with colored liquid pulp or using multiple couches to collage. Intuitively, the process of making a sheet of paper by hand became a liquid medium of expression in the hands of the artist. Ken Tyler learned his trade as uh, a fine printmaker in 1963 at the Tamron Institute of Lithography when it first started in Los Angeles. By 1965, he left Tamron to found Gemini, one of the preeminent, and is still in existence, preeminent fine print publishing companies. As he explored using different printmaking methods, such as offset lithography, not just stone lithography, he also researched papers that would provide artists with exciting new choices often working directly with legendary European mills to develop new and sophisticated archival papers for prints. And this was also a time when people were becoming much more aware of neutral pH in archival papers, too. In 1973, he convinced Robert Rauschenberg, and that's his image, um, <clears throat> to work directly with papermakers at Richard de Bas paper mill in France to create some of the first landmark landmark art using paper pulp. And um, it was, I gather, the the background stories. They had to get Rauschenberg kind of drunk, so he had the guts to go in there with these ancient paper makers in in these caverns, basically, of Richard de de Bas to actually make big messes (laughs) of art instead of sheets of paper. So it was quite revolutionary. But it was while visiting Cranbrook Academy a few years earlier, in 1970, that he was introduced to Lawrence Barker's hand papermaking facility and to one of his students, John Kohler, who's pictured here. Upon graduation, Kohler set up a mill in Connecticut and worked directly with Tyler to produce some of the first experimental work with artists such as Ellsworth Kelly. These are very early, early pieces. And anyway, I have a lot of little inside uh, comments. Everyone loved the bleeding colors of Ellsworth Kelly. They said, oh my gosh, isn't that great? He's bleeding his colors. It's because they didn't know how to fix color yet. (laughs) But anyway, don't repeat that. It's not David, but it's true. Um, So Ellsworth Kelly and Frank Stella, who's pictured here. um, And this is, they were trying to make three-dimensional kind of cast paper. Eventually, Tyler incorporated hand paper making as an important component of all of his collaborations with the 20th century's most important artists, including Helen Frankenthaler, pictured here with Ken Tyler, um, as well as that's one for pieces, as well as James Rosenquist using a spray gun to spray cotton pulp to make these outsized uh, sheets of paper for oversized prints. Um, the paper pull series uh, he did with David Hockney in 1978 were created in his own shop at Tyler Graphics by this time in Mount Kisco, New York, and are still considered, considered groundbreaking works of art. 
Though Garner Tullis had become interested in handmade paper and paper pulp as a sculpture student at the University of Pennsylvania in the 1960s, it was not until he established the Experimental Printmaking Workshop in San Francisco in 1976 that he fully incorporated his large-scale concepts of applying hand paper making to both relief multiples as well as print editions. Working with artists such as Louise Nevelson, I don't know if you've ever seen Louise Nevelson, Nevelson's paper cast, but these are, this is the cast that was used uh, to make the paper pulp cast. Um, and Sam Francis, this is his work. Uh, Tullis strove to stretch the boundaries of the print or the paper multiple with the use of handmade paper. And there's Sam Francis with our classic white rectangle. <coughs> Um, both of these dynamic entrepreneurs set the pace for extraordinary experimentation in handmade paper, encouraging their artists to think out of the box as defined by the white rectangle. They established a new model for artistic collaboration that was as close to a laboratory setting as it was to the old world print shop. Experimentation was the operative word in the print and paper arts of the 1960s and continued to define the art of the 1970s as the book arts revolution picked up momentum. Walter Hamby, who's pictured here in his own shop um, outside of Madison, Wisconsin. Walter Hamity, a Cranbrook graduate, joined the art department at the University of Wisconsin in 1966 to teach letterpress printing and bookbinding. He quickly assembled enough hand paper making equipment so that his students could learn his method of making custom-made paper from old rags for their editions of private press books. It was a modest paper mill originally. It was housed in a little closet. It was closet paper making in the type shop. Uh, eventually moved out. Um, one of his students, Joe Wilfer, uh, established his own mill in a barn outside of Madison and began collaborating with fellow colleague Bill Wiggy and with visiting artists such as Alan Shields on radically innovative print and paper mul multiples. Shields' highly unconventional approach to making um, art reflected his early training as an engineer as well as the innovative spirit of the times. In 1974, I joined Walter Hamdy's class with fellow student Steve Miller, who now runs the book arts program at the University of Alabama, and Ken Botnick, who teaches book arts at Washington University, and Ruth Lingen, who runs the paper studio for Pace Editions in New York City, and Paul Wong, who's the artistic director at Judenay, at Judenay to name just a few of Walter's students who were there at that time really gone out to do amazing things. As part of Walter's book class, I began publishing under the press name of Giordone, um, which, as Michael explained, was the first part of my father's name, Giordone Francois Gauzin, and it was translated from French. It means God-given. Uh, in the fall of 1976, Giordone Press and Paper was incorporated and relocated to Soho when it was still a bohemian artist's enclave in Manhattan. For a year, we designed and built equipment, hunted down sources of rag in the garment district, tested traditional and contemporary methods of sizing and coloring, and developed a line of 100% rag papers. Um, all of this stuff doesn't seem like anything brand new now, but at the time, <laughs> we were rediscovering a lost craft. Um, let's see, this is the last one. All right. Um, as interest in hand paper making grew, we developed curriculum for university programs, uh, collaborated with artists such as Chuck Close, worked with curators on exhibitions, and developed custom archival paper for conservators and printers. In 1988, I reincorporated the press and the mill separately so that the paper mill is a not-for-profit, which you see pictured here, could get support for our ongoing research, outreach programs, and artist residencies. 
Today, Giudanay Paper Mill continues to serve the national and international art community, while Giudanay Press continues to publish limited edition books with artists and writers. Um, so, but before continuing with uh, the next aspect of this slideshow, which is a lot of artwork that you're going to see, I just want to um, briefly acknowledge the work of a few of my colleagues, and it's that's really a whole other lecture, but I... There's so many people that have done just extraordinary things. I kind of, you know, picked out a couple of people here and there. Um, but to give a context for the snapshot of hand paper making today, I'll group current hand paper making activities in, into three categories. The first is traditional sheet forming and production, as it was and continues to be pra practiced today. Western fine sheet production continues throughout the world in many different settings from <clears throat> Twin Rocker in Indiana to the Gandhi Ashram in Ahmedabad, India, whereas Japanese-style sheet production is practiced at the University of Iowa under the direction of Tim Barrett. And though the number of hand paper makers in Japan has diminished from 60,000 to 4,000, um, fine paper making still continues to flourish throughout that country. Other forms of sheet production, including using rice straw, bamboo, daphne, as well as mulberry, occur in outposts all over Asia, from Tibet to Burma. Okay, the next category um, is under falls under the title of creative hand paper making, uh, and you're going to see a lot of that in a moment, of which there are virtually thousands of artists hand paper makers all over the world who make important contributions to the field. Many of these artists are members of either or both the Friends of Dart Hunter and the International Association of Hand Paper Makers and Artists. Within this category, there are numerous educational facilities and institutions that serve as centers for creative art paper making, uh, such as Columbia College in Chicago, the Brodsky Center at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and of course, the University of Wisconsin. Um, then there are also papermaking pro programs at arts and craft schools like Penland in North Carolina and Haystack in Maine. All this has been happening in the last really 30 years. It's kind of amazing. Then there's a third category, which is growing, and this is the field of international micro-industry and education, where new hand paper mills are being established to create employment for local artisans in places like Pumani Paper in Johannesburg and, and South Africa, and the Yanomani facility along the Amazon in Venezuela. And that's really kind of a very interesting new area. These are not in the tradition like Japanese paper making that's been going on for you know, centuries and centuries. These are new uh, micro-industry uh, organizations. <clears throat> These three categories often overlap in the case of for example, Paul Wong, our artistic director at Jidenay, who regularly makes uh, production paper, sheets of paper. He collaborates with artists on their work, as well as he makes his own art. Also, these categories do not reflect the ongoing historical research in the field by people like Elaine Koretsky, although I have an example of hers over there, or Tim Barrett, of course. And I also have an example of Hand Paper Making Magazine, which covers all these different areas of hand paper making and is an excellent resource. I have a copy over there just to take a look at. So clearly, hand paper making is flourishing in the 21st century. The wide selection of beautiful handmade papers found in national art and stationery stores are a testament to both the worldwide activity in hand paper making as well as to an educated public that appreciates fine paper. It's a wonderful irony that as electronic communication replaces the role that paper has served historically, 
as a carrier of information, there's a new awareness of its inherent beauty. While the papermaking process itself has been reborn and reinvented in the hands of artists. Um, thank you. With a copy of the poster and a thank you note. And, and please join me in thanking.